That's right, this is Joe motherfucking exotic, motherfucker. And I'm out of prison and I got a big old motherfucking dick, so I'm running for motherfucking president 2024. And I'm gonna cram my big old motherfucking dick right down your throat. Are you motherfuckers sick of Joe Biden? You sick of those motherfucking gas prices? You sick of that motherfucking Kamala Harris motherfucking bitch? You sick of fucking Nancy Pelosi and Gavin Newsom? Fuck them motherfuckers. Me and my meth taggers are gonna run them motherfuckers out of the motherfucking White House. 2024, Joe motherfucking exotic, and maybe I won't even kill you dumb motherfuckers. Vote for me, I got a big old fucking dick. Now go fuck yourself, motherfuckers. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and I, I am Joe motherfucking exotic, and I approve this motherfucking message. Joe exotic for 2024, motherfucker. Music and murder contains violence, oh. profanity, oh. and graphic material that may not be suitable for children oh. or people with weak stomachs. Oh. Parental advisory is definitely recommended. Miss me yet? Of course you did. I told you, I'll be back. Come on, I'm going to kill you. Get into the chopper. This is episode 13 of Music and Murder, and I am your host, Michael D. Keeney. And the D stands for dickhead. And according to some of the messages from my listeners, I know there seems to be some agreement on that. But I'll tell you what I tell them. If you don't like the show, maybe you should start your own podcast called Music and Murder Sucks and discuss what a dick I am to all your listeners. Hell, I'll even help you fund it. Because, I don't know if you know this, but people love dick. I mean, people love dickheads. So love me. Shut up and love me. Now this episode is one that is sad as usual, and it involves the cousin of a well-known country singer. I'd also like to point out that even though this case has been decided by a jury, there still to this day has not been any solid ironclad evidence on this case. And in my opinion, it is not solved. So nevertheless, it is a good case for this show. And for all of you amateur sluts, I mean sleuths, try to figure it out. And if you have a theory that maybe seem a little obscure, but it does make sense, maybe shoot me a message on my IG at music underscore murder underscore podcast and let me know what you think. I'm very interested. This case, like all the cases that I've covered, is tragic as fuck, and it makes me want to find out the truth of what really happened. Please follow the show on IG, and share, review, and all of that shit. Oh, and by the way, I had a message sent to me about the music on the show being too up and down, and even though I'm not one to give in to criticism, I believe that that is kind of true. From now on, all of the music on this show will be melancholy, depressing, and very mellow. I will still play all genres, however, unless it is a song that literally pertains to the victims or the murderer, I will not be playing anything that is energetic or fast-paced from now on. 
Now, deep breath, draw the curtains, hit the pipe, peep out the blinds, take a break from your life, and spend some time with me. This is the case of 20-year-old Holly Bobo, and I promise the clips in the music alone on this episode will be worth listening to by themselves, even if you don't like me. And on that note, away we go. This is them. What's, what's wrong, dear? Listen, 631 Road. Somebody has my daughter. Somebody in full camouflage got Holly. Please get everybody out there. Okay, they're on their way, sweetie. They're on their way right now. Actually, they weren't on their way. At least, not right then. What you just heard was a 911 call placed to the dispatching center regarding a missing 20-year-old woman in a tiny little town in Tennessee called Darden. And yes, just like I said, the call was meant for Darden, but there was initially some confusion in exactly what county the 911 call was dispatched to. Excuse me, what the 911 call was dispatched to. You see, when 911 calls are placed, they go to the nearest dispatching center from where the 911 call is placed from, which makes perfect sense, right? However, if you are a mother at work and you're calling 911 from a different county than you live in and it's regarding your missing daughter in that said county that you live in, things can get a little confusing. Before we get into that, let me introduce you to one of the smallest and tight-knit little cities in the state of Tennessee. While I can currently tell you about the most rigorous and expensive missing person and murder case in the history of the state of Tennessee. Now Darden, Tennessee is literally about an hour and a half away from Nashville and to be specific, it is southwest of Nashville. Just in case you know your way around Tennessee and you want to picture exactly where it's at. The charming little town of Darden is literally that one horse town that you think about when you think of places before the industrial revolution took over and turned us all into slaves to time, money, politics, and corporations. I've actually been there. It is pretty much as old school as old school gets. In 2010, the United States Census stated that its population was a whopping 500 people. Actually, I think it was like 493, but who's counting? Sure, seven people were born since then. Now, enough about the uh, geographical information and back to the 911 call. Now, this 911 call was made by Karen Bobo. And Karen Bobo was a mother to a 20-year-old nursing student named Holly Bobo. You can hear it in Karen's voice that she was completely, really fucked up over the situation of Holly's disappearance, as she should be, as any mother would be. And you can call it mother's intuition or whatever you want to call it, but Karen Bobo knew immediately, immediately, that something was terribly wrong. Not that she just like took off or something happened. Karen knew that something was going on that was not good. 
Now the first problem with this 911 call and this case in general was that since Holly's mother Karen made the 911 call from her work, the call was picked up and dispatched to the wrong county. This mistake held things off for a bit. Now whether or not this was a critical error that could have possibly led to Holly's demise, we will never know. But it sure as hell did not help anything at all with the investigation. The story I'm about to tell you is the story of Holly Bobo, who went missing on the morning of April 13th, 2011, and was abducted from her own home while a family member basically watched and did nothing because for reasons unknown, they stated that they thought that Holly had left through the backwoods with her boyfriend, even though she was heard screaming no inside the house before she was taken by a man in camouflage that bared absolutely no resemblance to the man that she was walking away with. There are so many discrepancies in this story and this whole murder case that you'll likely find yourself coming to your own conclusions. But this story does have it all though. The murder weapon, an alleged VHS tape of Holly being raped and killed, rather kind of like a snuff film if you may, and of course, a meth lab, and the fact that Holly's cousin is a very well-known country singer in Nashville. And, and no, I'm not saying that she's like Garth Brooks and internationally known, but she is a very big deal in Nashville. People know who she is. She was successful, at least at this time. I, I personally do not know her, so I don't know. I just know of her music. However, before we get into all of that, like always, let's back that ass up and rewind and start from the beginning. The very beginning. Holly Bobo was, as aforementioned, a nursing student at the University of Tennessee in Parsons, Tennessee. The University of Tennessee is an amazing school not too far from where Holly, Holly lived. In fact, it was literally like only 10 miles. The University of Tennessee is internationally famous for their crazy good sports programs that produced NFL stars like Peyton Manning and Reggie White and many more. If you know anything about college sports, you know about this school. Holly was born on October 12, 1990, which again made her 20 years old at the time of her abduction and likely her murder. Her mother was named Karen Bobo and her father was named Dana Bobo. Holly was excelling as a nursing student, which any of you that have ever taken like any prerequisites for nursing which I have, you know that anatomy, physiology, pre-med biology, all that shit is not for people with average IQs. And even with this college major, Holly was doing great. And it didn't hurt that she had such a great and stable family to help and support her through all of this. Well, for the most part anyway. You see, Holly did have one weak link in her family chain and that weak link was her older brother 25 year old Clint Bobo who was 25 at the time 
Now, Clint allegedly, and I say allegedly because none of us was there. There was no scientifically proven evidence of anything. But allegedly, Holly's brother Clint had some issues. He had some dealings with local police. And though he had no actual serious arrest record, he was known in the little town of Darden to be one who dabbles in things such as methamphetamine use, etc. And I say meth use, etc. because if you're doing meth, you've likely done everything else, right? Because as most of you likely realize, meth is not a gateway drug. It's one of the two drugs that are very, very much at the end of the street that you go through when you go through the gate, right alongside heroin. Cocaine is kind of there too, but it's likely half the population has done cocaine, where meth and heroin are much, much smaller, statistically speaking, as far as use by the population, and for good reasons. And this shows in society because it's pretty obvious to most people when someone close to them is doing meth or heroin, but not so much if someone goes out and snorts and blow off a stripper's ass. You know what I mean? You feel me? Now, on the day that Holly went missing, which, to reiterate, was April 13th, 2011, Holly had an important exam in one of her classes. I don't know which one, but she had a very important exam that day. So she got up really early at 4.30 a.m., which to me is like about the time that I'm starting to get ready for bed. Which is why I'm a weirdo that does podcasts about murders, I suppose. I don't know. So Holly gets up at 4.30 a.m. and begins to study for this exam. Her boyfriend, who's named Drew Scott, calls Holly at approximately 7.30 a.m. Now, Drew had called her while he was wild turkey hunting on Holly's grandparents' property. And no, I'm not talking about the whiskey. This is Tennessee, so he was actually hunting for real wild turkeys. There's a lot of turkeys by my house, and I wouldn't mind hunting and eating a few, but I live in California, where you can only eat meat from animals that are inhumanely slaughtered by corporations after they fill them with antibiotics and sodium and other carcinogens that make them heavier and cause tons of health problems for anyone who consumes them. Gotta love politics, power, and money. They make so much fucking sense, right? Now, after she ends the phone call with Drew, her boyfriend, she makes another phone call, which must not have been too important or relevant to her abduction because nothing about this phone call or who she called was mentioned in any of the sources that I could find. I'm sure if you dig deep enough, you could find but uh, uh, find out who she called, but obviously it wasn't that important because it's not really in anything. All we know for sure is that after the phone call, someone had showed up into the garage where Holly was, or they went into the home and took Holly to the garage. Now, a male neighbor in his teens heard Holly screaming and called his mother. The neighbor's mother then called Holly's mother, Karen, because you have to remember This was a town that was small where people actually still give a fuck about their neighbors. Not like big cities. Holly's mother in turn tried calling Holly's phone, and of course there was no answer. Holly's mother Karen then called Holly 
uh, actually Holly's 25-year-old brother, excuse me, Clint, who was still asleep, of course. Because like I noted previously, Clint was a rocket scientist who was going to save the world and cure cancer, just, you know, a real go-getter. So he was still living at home at 25 and sleeping all day and likely doing meth every night. But you didn't hear that from me. It's none of my business. Now hold that thought while you listen to this nice mellow song from one of my favorite composers who goes by the name RXY. That's right, RXY. And this song is called Only. I hope that you like it. Be right back.
Welcome back to Music and Murder, the only show that people kill or die to be on. So I made a mistake on that recording artist's name that I just played. It's actually R-Y-X, not R-X-Y. So if you looked it up, sorry about that. But I did get the song right. It's called Only. By the way, if you'd like to message me about your music or being a guest on the show, please follow the show on IG and message me on there. And the IG is music underscore murder underscore podcast. Okay, back to where we left off. Now again, this is the kidnapping and murder case of Holly Lynn Bobo, who was abducted from her home on Wednesday, April 13th, 2011, sometime around 8.45 a.m. He said the real reason that we were there was to show Clint how to manufacture meth. And we will get into that really soon. So Holly was supposedly taken by a man who was dressed completely from head to toe in camo. Kind of sounds like me, but it wasn't me. I swear, I was in California. At least according to her brother, Cunt. I mean, Clint. Who literally saw his sister being led off into the woods by her abductor. He literally watched this happened like he looked out the window and there goes his sister with this fucking person that was all dressed in camel walking out into the woods into the tennessee woods and for you that have ever been like to tennessee and seen the woods in tennessee very 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 thick woods so you'd have to ask yourself why are they walking out into the woods but clint didn't really seem too interested or too worried about it according to clint This was because she stated that he thought that she was fighting with her boyfriend, Drew Scott. However, he later recanted that bullshit story and stated that the man that Holly was walking off with was much larger than her boyfriend and didn't look anything like him. Basically, her brother Clint is a fucking waste of of space, just uh, literally. He gave a recent interview, like in 2000, I believe it was 2020? And he claimed that he has absolutely no clue, no clue at all, why people keep fucking with him or why people may think that he had something to do with his sister Holly's disappearance or murder. <sighs> I know, that's a, that's a crazy one, right? Why would anybody think that? That is a mystery for anyone with an IQ lower than 50, I suppose. And if your IQ is lower than 50 and you're offended by me saying that, Just wait about 20 seconds and I promise you'll forget all about it. 
It's like that actor John Wayne said, life is hard, and it's harder if you're stupid. Very true words. So Holly's gone, and Clint is the only eyewitness. And even before Clint calls anyone or does anything at all, it's his neighbor who literally has to call his own mother, who then calls Holly and Clint's mother, Karen. Because, well, just because Clint hears his sister screaming no and then watches her be drug off into the woods, why should he actually call anyone, right? And by the way, I did... I think I mentioned that in part one to where he did hear Holly screaming no in the garage. So there was that before he saw her being let off into the woods. And neither one of those rang a bell at all to like maybe call somebody like the cops or his mom or grab a gun or anything. Here is the neighbor's testimony at the trial. And yes, this, this is the neighbor that called his mother that in turn called Holly and Clint's mother. The first witness called by the prosecution, James Barnes, a neighbor who was a critical ear witness. About 7.50, sometime like that, I heard some arguing going on next door. So, uh, so I kind of looked through the trees to see what was going on and couldn't see anything at all. And... Uh, she started screaming a little, and then she quit. You actually got a cold chill. Oh, yeah. My hair stood up everywhere, and I looked around, and every one of my dogs, they were on the ground. Their ears were up. So it was the neighbor, not Holly's brother, that got chills. And the neighbor didn't even hear Holly in the garage screaming, no. Hmm. To further reiterate what I just stated, here's Holly's mother, Karen, talking on the stand about the same phone call and describing how she had to coach 25-year-old Clint and tell him what to do in this obvious situation. The secretary of the school came to the cafeteria and she said that the neighbor had called and said she didn't want to alarm me, but she thought she heard screams coming from the house. So that's not a phone call that I got every day. I never gotten a phone call like that. So I almost instantly got into a panic at that point. And I asked my son, Clint, what's going on? And he said, did Holly not have school today? And I said, yes, why? And he said, well, I think she's out here with Drew. And I, I don't know what made me say it. I just, this instant panic came over me. And I said, that's not Drew call all the neighbors I think is what I said and then I ran over to the office and I called 911 I don't remember exactly what I said but I remember they said it was Henderson County we live in Decatur County so I hung up I think I fell on the floor at that point and I guess I called Clint back, but I don't really remember now if it was from the library phone or the office phone, and he was still talking about was Holly not going to school today when she turkey hunting with Drew. And I said, that's not Drew. And at some point, I said, get a gun and shoot him. Now, keep in mind that Clint actually heard Holly screaming no, saw her being let off in the woods, and still had to have his mother tell him to get a gun and shoot the guy because... He wasn't smart enough to figure that out himself. Yeah. So the state of Tennessee did everything in their power to find Holly. 
They spared no expense and made the Holly Lynn Bobo case to this day the single most expensive missing pers person case in Tennessee's history. I may reiterate that a few times in this episode because it's a pretty big deal. Tennessee, despite of its small size compared to other states, has experienced more than its fair share of murderers and missing people. Very much so. Per capita of size, Tennessee is in the top three of these types of, of uh, occurrences. And that's just per capita, right? So we're not going to compare them to California or Texas because literally probably Fresno's bigger than Tennessee. So it's like you can't compare it like that. I suppose that one could construe that Southern hospitality could manifest in many different forms. So they now have search and rescue teams everywhere, surrounding the whole house. Holly's dad, Dana, shows up, and Dana is not a dumb man. He immediately tells the authorities surrounding his home. Well, again, I'll just play a clip from his testimony. Here is Dana Bobo, Holly's father, talking about the encounter with the FBI and all of the other officers that were surrounding his home when he pulled up after Holly was missing. First person I saw that I thought I needed to talk to was, was my son, Clint. And I went inside and I found my pistol and I come back outside with pistol. Was the pistol loaded? Yes, ma'am. Did TBI come? TBI was there. Was it the FBI come? FBI was there. Uh, Sure. U.S. Marshals was there. The U.S. Marshals, FBI, TBI. A SWAT team. I remember them pulling up. It was people wandering, standing, fiddling, just like, like nobody. No, it, it was kind of like nobody knew what to do. Uh, that's the way I took it at the time. At, at, at some point in the middle of the morning, did you lose patience with an FBI agent and tell him what he should go do? <coughs> What did you say? I, I couldn't tell you who it was. That's all right. Uh, I told him, uh, I told him if y'all think one of us done it, I was talking about me and Clint and Karen that was still left there. I said, if y'all think one of us done it, 10 of y'all stay here with us and the rest of you go do something. And it probably wasn't that nice of words when I said it. But you wanted somebody to do something. Something. Yes, ma'am. You wanted Holly? Yes. Back. Immediately. And by do something, what Dana was talking about is that when he pulled up at his house, in front of his house, he had all these different officers just standing around doing absolutely nothing. So he had to actually ask them to do something to like leave the front of the house because that's the one fucking place that they knew that Holly wasn't right just so you know TBI in in this instance stands for Tennessee Bureau of Investigations it's kind of like their own personal little FBI so friends and family and of course the national media begin to plaster Holly's face all over everything possible and not that it matters to me because I think that every living person is equal, but Holly was a very pretty girl with blonde hair and everything that one would need to receive attention from the national media these days, right? And to make matters more national media worthy, well, just like the Scott Peterson case, this case was 100% circumstantial. 
and just in case it doesn't make sense when I say it, here's the local news lady from the Tennessee, uh, I can't remember, Tennessee something. This case was a very difficult one for prosecutors, and that's because it was almost entirely a circumstantial case. Now, I do have to rant for a second about how sad it is that the national media usually only decides to cover missing person stories of pretty white women. But it is definitely a reality. And trust me, I'm not saying that Holly's case didn't deserve to be given national attention because it did. I mean, hell, I'm covering it. I'm merely just stating that more missing people, meaning men and women of all shapes, sizes, and colors, should receive national news coverage as well. And in this show's defense, Music and Murder is covering this case because it's not only a good and interesting case, it's also because Holly Bobo's cousin is a well-known Nashville country singer named Whitney Duncan, who released a really good song in Holly's memory, which I will be playing at the end of this episode. So don't be judging me. And thinking that I can only choose to cover cases of pretty white women or any shit like that because that's very far from the truth. If you remember the last case, it was Marvin Gaye, and he is definitely not a pretty white woman. I dislike everyone on this planet evenly. Everybody, evenly. Okay, I'm happy we got that all squared away. Okay, so let's move on. So after many grueling days searching everywhere for Holly and looking for leads and hypnotizing repeatedly interrogating and polygraphing Holly's worthless brother, Clint, there's finally a break in the case, which surprisingly had nothing to do with Clint, at least not allegedly. Now, in September of 2014, just over three years since Holly's disappearance, Holly's partial remains were found in northern Decatur County, and I hope I'm saying that right, but Decatur County... Now, the coroner declared that she likely expired from the result of a single gunshot wound to the back of her head. These partial remains of Holly that were found in Decatur County, Tennessee, were recovered about 20 miles away from Holly's home, where she was originally abducted, while her older brother Clint Bobo watched. And I'm sorry to keep beating this fact of her slacker loser brother to death, but seriously, fuck him and his neglectful idiocy. I'm just going to come out and say it. Either Clint had something to do with it, or he possibly even did it himself. But no matter what, he let it happen. In fact, he watched and heard it happen. If you're listening, Clint, come at me, bro. I ain't hard to find. Not at all. I'm everywhere in a town near you. Come at me. Now, Holly's partial remains were actually found by ginseng hunters in the deep woods. And yes, they were hunting ginseng, and I hope they had their ginseng rifles with them because nobody wants to get attacked by a fucking ginseng. Those fuckers are ruthless, and when they attack, they leave very little survivors. Here's one of the ginseng hunters talking at the trial about what they have found. They were actually walking through the woods hunting ginseng, and they saw a bucket, but I will let him tell you. I went with my instinct when the feeling hit me, said, turn around. And then that's when I found what I found. What'd you find? Holly's remains. Well, what specifically did you find? The, the skull. Now, in case you didn't catch what he was saying, because he's a ginseng hunter, he was saying that he was kind of drawn over to a bucket 
That held no significance, but he walked over to the bucket and turned around, and then he found her skull. Now, that wasn't the only thing that they found. And I say they because he wasn't the only one. There was a, I, I think there was three of them. Now, what they found was the skull first. Then they also found Holly's shoulder blade and a few of her ribs. So Tennessee law enforcement, family and friends, and of course, anyone watching the news at this time, finally got to learn that Holly was deceased and that she very likely died as a result from a single gunshot wound to her head which, as bad as it sounds, is definitely one of the best ways that someone who was abducted like she was could expire. So in some way, it had to give her family and friends a little peace of mind knowing that Holly did at least allegedly pass quickly and painlessly. Now the problem with this is that nobody still to this day knows exactly what happened before she was actually shot to death. However, there are some stories, and we're about to get into those stories after this song by Tori Amos, who is, without a doubt, one of my favorite recording artists of all time, and one that I actually got to see live last month on June 18th at the historical Orpheum in Los Angeles. Now, this is Tori doing her song that she wrote for her father called Winter which is very ironic right now because it's mid-July and literally 102 degrees in my garage while I'm recording right now. It's a little awful. I have many versions of this song, but this is probably my, probably my favorite, and it was recorded in Toronto, Canada, eh? On October 23rd, 2007, during her Legs and Boots tour, which I wish to God I was able to see. Seeing her the other day was good, and it was her Oceans to Oceans tour, but she did a lot of jamming with her band and not a lot of vocalist stuff, you know. I, I personally like to see her just actually play solo. I think that's a lot better. But anyway, here's the song. It is called Winter, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. 
This episode of Music and Murder is brought to you by your motherfucking mom. That's right, motherfucker. It's brought to you by your motherfucking mom. Bitch sucks, and she fucks, and she cleans up cum whenever you fucking come all over the whole motherfucking house. So make sure to purchase your motherfucking mom and support the show. So again, that was the amazing Tori Amos, who is even respected by Maynard from Tool, who actually has performed some of her songs live with her. And if you don't believe me, YouTube that shit. I ain't lying. Again, please follow the show at the show's IG at music underscore murder underscore podcast or the Facebook page, which is obviously just the name of the show. And please remember that the show is sponsored by your mom. So please always support our sponsors. That way we could stay in business and make a living like all the big name boring ass true crime podcasts that are out there that have six people doing what I do alone. Now let's get back to the controversial Holly Bobo murder case because that isn't funny at all. So Holly was abducted from her home in Darden, Tennessee on April 13, 2011, and her partial remains were found in September of 2014, which, if you remember, was her skull, her shoulder blade, and a few of her ribs. 
Now the skull had a bullet trajectory that proved that she was shot on the right side of her head and it exited on the left side of her jawbone, which meant that it was most certainly a shot that was meant to kill her. Nothing else. It was meant to end her life, to stop her heart, and it likely did. Now Holly's remains were found 20 miles from her home by the ginseng hunters and uh, her remains that they found were decayed and, and really way too damaged from the elements to retrieve any significant evidence other than that she likely expired from a single gunshot wound to the head as I previously stated. And again, this manifested into the most costly and biggest missing person case in Tennessee history. Now when the investigation began on the day of April 13th, 2011 when Holly went missing, investigators found blood in the garage where Holly was screaming no. Also, pings from her cell phone showed her phone traveling nor northbound on Interstate 40, which was later where her phone was actually found with the SIM card missing, and even more later where her actual remains were found, at least her partial remains. Now the first person that police had looked at was a pedophile and registered sex offender named Terry Britt. Now Britt actually lived really close to Holly and he had been known to rape and really be into blonde women. So he was a perfect match for a likely unsub or if you prefer perpetrator. Now I've been using the term unsub a lot lately because of the show Criminal Minds on Netflix. It's one of my favorite shows to watch now so I don't mean to uh, change up my words because I used to use the word perp a lot but I do like I like unsub. That works good. Now also Brit, this pedophile fuck, he fit Clint's description of the man walking off into the woods with Holly and Brit also had a voice that matched the voice that Clint heard talking to Holly when she was in the garage screaming no. However, we do have to remember that this is the rocket scientist Clint that we're talking about. Britt did and does still seem to me like the most likely suspect in this case. This piece of fuck raped multiple women and even his worthless wife helped him stalk women in the past. His alibi stated that he stayed home that day, meaning the day of Holly's abduction, to install a bathtub with his wife. They even produced a handwritten receipt that the store they supposedly bought the bathtub from had no recollection of. And his wife did go to work the day of Holly's disappearance, but Britt called her and had her come home from work if you can believe that. He literally called her and said, you need to come home from work. Now, if that's not enough to make you say, what the actual fuck? Check this out. Former TBI agent, and remember that stands for Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, Officer Terry Dicus or Dickus, I don't know, it's D-I-C-U-S, literally testified that Britt wasn't only their number one suspect, and that his palm print was likely found on Holly Bobo's car, but Dykus also stated that Britt cut off all of his hair right after Holly's disappearance. So what the fuck? Why wasn't he arrested and charged, convicted and killed? 
Well, according to Officer Dykus, after Britt had even told detectives that they had figured him out and he was ready to give a full confession, they let him go for insufficient evidence and his bullshit alibi. I am not making this up. You can look it up. It's obviously absolutely insane. They could have at least looked for like remnants of Holly's hair or and you know clothing or or fibers or anything in his car and his house. The motherfucker was a registered sex offender. They could have like totally went into his house, totally searched all of his stuff, and they did none of this. Absolutely none of it. Now, one thing that I didn't tell you about Officer Dykus is that he was not only testifying in the Holly Bobo case, but he was testifying for the defense, not the prosecution. This is a cop. This is a guy that wore a badge for a long time and worked the Holly Bobo case, literally testifying for the defense. Which brings me to the next chapter of this twisted, insane, fucked up tale. After the police let Britt go, meaning the pedophile fucking rapist go free and ruled out Holly's idiot brother Clint, nothing happened for years. Nothing happened for three to four years. And everyone was going insane and demanding an arrest. Kind of like the old witch hunt trials, right? So what happened? Well, you ever see that documentary called Paradise Lost, which was about three outcast high school students being railroaded by Arkansas dickheaded cops? Well, that's what happened here. The police found some outcasts in the community, did tons of shady shit, and then arrested, tried, and convicted men that, in my mind, are not guilty. I'm not saying they're not, but they're not guilty as far as the evidence shows, while the whole time letting the real killer go, which in my mind is either Holly's brother Clint or even more likely Terry Britt. And I'm sorry if my assumptions might offend anybody, but if you've read the evidence on this case, you will likely say they got the wrong people. Were they good people? Who the fuck knows? All I know is that their case was not proved. Now, it all began with an arrest from an unrelated weapons charge on a man, or we'll say prison snitch, named Dylan Adams. Here's a clip stating, in a nutshell, what this case was. So many years later, with so many unanswered questions, how did prosecutors decide that this man, Zach Adams, kidnapped, raped, and murdered Holly Bobo? And most importantly, could they prove it? Yeah, these arrests and these trials, especially that of Zach Adams, will lead to the biggest witch hunt and bullshit justice that I've ever heard of. This Tennessee witch hunt, it comes complete with a rape tape, a suicide, multiple wrong convictions, manufacturing methamphetamine, and the judge overseeing the case? Literally befriending the jury by offering them shit like high school football tickets. It is truly unbelievable and very unethical and a complete fucking insane joke of a circus called a courtroom. There was so much shit I almost had to make this a two-part episode, but I didn't. We'll get into all of that right after the song from your host, 
And I'm gonna do something a little different with this one that I've done with any other songs. I'm actually going to just back the chair up away from this one single microphone, grab my guitar, and just sing it live. And it's not gonna sound good. That's the reason why people don't record like this, but I feel that raw is good. This is a song I'm getting ready to, re to uh, release. It is called Moonshine is the Truth. If you like it, please look it up. If you don't, please just forward it. Let's see how it sounds. All right, so I'm way back here, just acoustic guitar, and me in a garage and a microphone. <sighs> Let's see how it sounds. This is called Moonshine is the Truth. Stay drunk till noon. Take me down to a moonlit town where the blood runs cold. Take me down to dance around before I get old. Yeah. <laughs> 
So what was the key evidence? An eyewitness who claimed he saw much of it happen. I couldn't have picked a prettier bitch. It was horrible. The world may never know what happened to Holly Jordan. April 13, 2011. April 13, 2011. That's the day on Holly's headstone. That's the day that she was taken. Meth and morphine and the dark, dark things that go along with it. He had years to destroy evidence, to scatter evidence, to get rid of crime scenes, to build lies on lies. He had a year and a half, two year head start. You can understand why he was so confident. They're talking about a man named Zach Adams. Maybe he was confident. Or maybe he was innocent. Listen to this next segment and you decide. So again, Holly Lynn Bobo, age 20, was abducted in April of 2011 and then at some point killed. And her remains were found in September of 2014. After this, the Tennessee police questioned and then let that pedophile, rapist, Terry Britt, a well-known sex offender and a man known for raping and stalking young blonde women go free via his bullshit alibi and basically laziness and miscommunication on their part. Police officers like everyone else are people and as people they do make mistakes and can be caught not doing their job and in this case letting Terry Britt go free was them not doing their job. I can go on and on about how many mistakes were made in this case and how much different departments working on this case didn't do their job or communicate. But in the end, it was just sloppy fucking police work at its finest. Here's a little clip. The left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. We were feeding all of this information in and we didn't realize what was there. Their alibis or their stories were not checked out. Not thoroughly. checked out. It was a mistake. Yes, it was a mistake. It was a bad mistake. Yes, sir. Is it one, three years later you figure out how bad it was? Yeah. Now that was an actual Tennessee police officer testifying about their incompetency during the trial of what was the focus of the Tennessee witch hunt, Zach Adams. And just to be clear, I'm not stating that Zach is innocent. I'm stating that he was convicted when there was more evidence pointing away from his guilt than there was evidence pointing towards his guilt, if that makes sense. Now I wonder if police officers would do their job better and more efficiently if they got paid by actually getting things correctly done rather than just showing up for work. It's kind of like college professors. No matter how good or how bad they do their job, they get paid the same. Sure as fuck isn't like that in the music business or in most businesses, right? But for the cops 
And for teachers, yeah, it's the same. So many cops and prosecutors don't give a flying fuck about anything but getting convictions that could lead to promotions and political and financial gain. Sad shit, if you ask me. Extremely sad. So I played a clip earlier with a prison snitch named Jason Autry, who was the state's key witness in turn for immunity. That's right, he was there from what he said when they were killing and doing all the stuff to Holly, but he received immunity because he decided to go along with what the police said. Now he stated that he and others were at the Bobo home on April 13th, 2011, to show cunt, I mean, I'm sorry, I mean Clint Bobo how to manufacture methamphetamine, Holly's brother. I mean, that does sound correct, right? I mean, hey, Clint Bobo is sleeping and it's 8 a.m. and his sister, who is in college, is home, so let's go wake him up and teach him how to make fucking methamphetamines. Let's just teach a nice little methamphetamine manu manufacturing class at his house, right? Seems so legit and so logical. As Aaron Lewis would say, am I the only one here tonight shaking my head thinking something ain't right? This is seriously some ridiculously sick shit that was completely made up by the Tennessee detectives. Clint Bobo was known to be a meth head, but the only thing getting manufactured regarding this case was this bullshit story itself. So this witch hunt and bullshit scenario from the prosecution all began with a witness who was arrested on weapons charges named Dylan Adams. And you guessed it, Dylan is related to Zach. Dylan had quite an imaginary story to tell the jury once he got arrested on weapons charges and he didn't want to go to jail. The first thing he did was snitch off basically everyone that he knew for things that they likely didn't even do. This included a total of six arrests for the Holly Bobo murder case. Six people went down. Six people were arrested by Dylan Adams' words. Altogether, the Tennessee Police Department arrested the fictional ringleader and alleged rapist and killer himself, Zachary Adams. His brother Dylan Adams, who I just spoke about, obviously, being that he was the one that stated all of this. Their friends Jason Autry, the prison snitch, and brothers Jeffrey and Mark Piercy. And their friend Shane Austin, who literally fucking killed himself in a Florida hotel room in 2015 because of all this. All this psychological damage from being accused of playing a role in this extremely horrendous international case. Now going back to Dylan Adams' testimony, Dylan stated that on April 13th, 2011, he went to Zach's residence to get his truck. When he showed up, he observed Holly Lynn Bobo sitting in a green chair in the living room wearing a pink t-shirt with Jason Wayne Autry standing just a few feet away. He also told the police that Zach was wearing camouflage shorts, a black cutoff t-shirt, and a pair of green Crocs, which I called nurse shoes. Dylan also said that Zach told him that he had just raped Bobo and videotaped it. I will get into this mysterious videotape soon. 
Dylan later recanted this confession and alleged that it was coerced. Ah, coerced. This confession did not match with anything, which we will also get into. And not only was Dylan's confession coerced, but the whole situation with Dylan was complete bullshit like I have never witnessed before in my life. You see, after Dylan was arrested on federal gun charges, he pleaded guilty. And part of that plea, and listen to this carefully, part of that plea that he pleaded to was that he was court ordered to go live with a retired police officer. Yes, you heard that right. And again, in this case, I say, what the actual fuck? The retired cop's name was Dennis Benjamin, who Dylan Adams didn't even know. This reminds me of like the Adam Sandler movie, Anger Management. He was forced to go live with a cop. Now after five months, get this, now after five months of living with this retired police officer, this retired cop calls 911 and he tells the 911 operator that he has someone in his house that wanted to confess to the murder of Holly Bobo. And to make matters fucking worse, Dylan was also basically mentally disabled in the manner that he was basically like a 10 year old child. Does it sound like it was a little bit of bullshit? He was coerced into saying all this shit, forced to live with a fucking ex-cop, and then five months later the cop says, oh, by the way, this guy that has a mental disability just said he killed Holly Bobo. Or at least he knew who did. So police are still on the hunt after years of nothing and letting Terry Britt, who was likely the real killer, in my mind anyway, and never check in his car, house, or alibi, go, free. Here, go ahead, go. Go, you fucking pedophile, go ahead and get out of here. So they arrest a mentally challenged man named Dylan Adams, and then they force him to live in a house with a retired cop who then makes up a story that Dylan wants to confess, blah, fucking blah. So much bullshit. The story that he told the police about what he saw at his brother Zach's that day when he went to pick his truck up completely, 100% contradicted what actual little authentic evidence that the police actually had. So in other words, this is beyond shady bullshit, even for the Tennessee fucking cops, which obviously love to just railroad people. So with this fake confession from a man that was mentally disabled, forced to live with a retired cop for five months while stating evidence that was proven to be wrong, the Tennessee police and prosecutor jump into action like fucking Superman. They begin arresting everyone for shit that they knew, that they knew that they were innocent of, for reasons that we'll never know. However, I'm thinking politics and promotions is a good place to start, right? So the second person to turn on everyone and go with the lies that the Tennessee Police Department coerced them into was Jason Autry. Now get this, even Jason's story, even Jason's story completely conflicted with Dylan's, which started this whole shit show. According to Autry, the state's key witness testified that he was not involved in the abduction himself, but that he went to Shane Austin's house. Remember Shane Austin, the guy that killed himself in 2015? He supposedly went to Shane Austin's house to purchase some meth, 
where he saw Shane Austin and Zach and uh, Dylan Adams disposing of evidence from the crime. Now, Jason Autry said that Zach Adams had a body in the back of his truck wrapped in a multicolored blanket and that Shane Austin was disposing of evidence in a burn barrel. You see, what makes this story so much bullshit is there's no way with the cash rewards and shit in this little town, someone from these six accused people wouldn't have came forward to collect that reward. Especially a bunch of fucking methamphetamine addicts, right? A bunch of meth heads. They're just gonna turn down hundreds of thousands of dollars. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. It's not logical and it doesn't make any sense. This is wrong. It's completely wrong. Even the cell towers show all of these men's phones being nowhere near Holly's phone, which can be done in different ways if you did it right, but not if you're a dumbass meth head like these guys were. These guys were absolute idiots and perfect for pinning this on if you're a dirty, scummy fucking cop looking out for number one. Perfect. They were the perfect scapegoats. Police asked Jason Autry, their star witness, to produce Holly's body. But guess what happened? He couldn't. I wonder why. Oh yeah, oh yeah, cause, cause he was fucking lying. He was lying about everything. He was coerced, he was told what to say, and he was lying. Now there was a receipt from Holly found about 75 feet up the road from Zach Adams' residence, and that was absolutely it. And that receipt was found well after he was blamed for Holly's disappearance, meaning, meaning that it was found many years later in Tennessee. And if you've ever been in Tennessee, you know that it actually rains. So does that make any sense to you? <laughs> so snitch Jason Autry said that Zach didn't burn Holly's body. He raped her and he videotaped it and then strangled Holly to death on tape, thus making it a snuff film. Autry and Adams then drove to a bridge, and keep in mind this is still Autry's story, drove to a bridge under I-40 to dump Holly's body. But when they got there, they quickly realized that Holly was still alive and that Zach then shot Holly in the head. The loudness and the echo of the gunshot scared them. And then once again, like a scene from Weekend with Bernie, they put Holly's poor, beaten, and bloody corpse back into the truck, and this time, they just dumped her body into the woods near Kelly Ridge, where her partial remains were found about three to four years later. Here's a little clip of Autry talking about that. It sound like boom, boom, boom underneath that bridge. It was just one shot, but it echoed underneath that bridge all the way down that damn river bottom. Now, being that the prosecution really didn't have any evidence, well, actually, they didn't have any evidence. It wasn't really. They didn't have any other evidence except for snitches. So they had to get a few other people. Here's a little clip explaining that. But prosecutors also called at least three other witnesses who recalled Adams bragging about killing Holly, including jailhouse snitch Corey Rivers. He was like, you know, I was I was there for the worst of it. And I was like, well, did you do it? And he was like, I, I was there for the worst of it. And he just left it like that. I bet he just left it like that.
because he was lying about the whole fucking thing. Now, 2,343 days passed by since Holly went missing before opening statements began in the case against her accused abductor and murderer, Zach Adams. And again, a total of six men were implicated in connection with Holly's disappearance. With the first of the arrests occurring in March of 2014, prior, prior to the discovery of her partial remains, Zach Adams, his brother Dylan Adams, and friend Jason Autry were ultimately charged with special aggravated kidnapping, first-degree murder, and rape. Jeffrey and Mark Piercy were arrested on charges of accessory after the fact and tampering with evidence. However, charges against the Piercy brothers were dropped for some reason. And the other man, Shane Austin, as aforementioned, committed suicide. He killed himself. It is unclear what initially led law enforcement to suspect these men, besides of course Dylan Adams being arrested for guns, and what they were known to be were, were meth cooks, but besides them knowing Clint Bobo, none of these guys had anything to do with Holly. Now Holly was smarter than that, than to be hanging around with a bunch of backwood tweakers. She had a life, and a great future, and a good boyfriend. She did have a piece of shit brother, but who knows if that led to this or not. Here's the opening statements from the prosecutor at Zach Adams' trial, or rather, the opening statement from Zach Adams' trial. For seasoned Tennessee prosecutor Paul Hagerman, this was his first opportunity to tell the jury and the world exactly what they believed happened to Holly. He took a great turn. He discarded her. He covered it up. He bragged about it. And he almost got away with it. He bragged about it. So that was the opening statement from the prosecution. Here's the opening statement from the defense. As soon as Hagerman was seated, Zach Adams' attorney Jennifer Thompson stood up and told the six men and six women of the jury a very different story. So, members of the jury, Zachary Wright Adams is innocent of the eight charges that he is facing here today. And it's worth saying it one more time, Zachary Wright Adams is innocent of all these charges. So, how is it that we got here today? As a matter of fact, not only did Zachary Rye Adams, he did not murder Holly Lynn Bobo, he did not kidnap Holly Lynn Bobo, he did not abduct Holly Lynn Bobo, he did not rape Holly. He did not, as a matter of fact, know Holly Bobo and had never even laid eyes on her. For Jennifer Thompson, she was telling the story of a devil in the community. And this was a community that she had to go back and live in. She had to buy her coffee there. She had to go out to breakfast there. She had to do her dry cleaning there. Jennifer Thompson's job was almost impossible. She had to tell the story of the devil. 
and there were some major flaws with the prosecution's case. This happens to be one of those tragedies in which somebody who was a good person, something bad happened to that person. However, Zach Adams is not the person who's guilty of this crime. This was the most expensive and most exhaustive investigation in the history of the state of Tennessee. And yet, when they came to 2013, they had nothing. They had a great big goose egg. They paid all this money and they had absolutely nothing to show for it. And they, the citizens of Decatur County, the family of Holly Bobo, and the public at large all wanted answers. Now, one last thing in regards to Zach Adams. He was known or allegedly known to have bragged about kidnapping, raping, and killing Holly to several people. This to me sounds like a bunch of tweaker talk. He wouldn't have told anyone if he actually did this. But the Tennessee detectives are very big persuaders. There were multiple clips of people stating that Zach said he'd do to them what he did to Holly. But here's his ex-girlfriend stating it, and this is all I have to say on the subject because I don't believe any of it. But as the testimony states, Zach Adams' then-girlfriend Rebecca Earp testified that he, well, let's just play the clip. The state went into overdrive in an effort to solve the case. But so many years later, prosecutors weren't able to find any physical evidence linking the suspects to the crime. So to bolster their case against Zach Adams, prosecutors needed eyewitnesses. First, they called Adams' ex-girlfriend, Rebecca Earp, to the stand. He made any statements to you about Holly Bobo? Yes, sir. What did he say? He said he would tie me up just like he did Holly Bobo and nobody would ever see me again. Now maybe you're thinking, okay, the other guys had some immunity, they had some gun charges, they had some reasons to lie. Here is Rebecca's motivation. But Adam's attorney tried to prove that Earp wasn't remotely credible, that she did drugs and might certainly have a foggy memory. To be clear, Rebecca, I mean, just to be honest, uh, back in the day, you were using meth also, weren't you? Yes, ma'am. And you were using a lot of Xanax, weren't you? Yes. Now this drug use was also followed by the fact that she was going to lose her children if she didn't testify against Zach in this trial. That's right. Her motivation was either say that Zach said this to you and threatened you or we're going to take your kids. Welcome to the Tennessee Police Department. That's how they work. At least in this case, that's how they work. Now, according to the prosecution, Zach Adams also allegedly threatened his brother after his arrest that he would put him in a hole right beside Holly if he didn't keep his mouth shut. So what's the real big problem with that? Do we remember what happened to Holly's body? It wasn't in a hole. It was just thrown out in the woods. So obviously either somebody's lying or everybody's lying. People are lying. 
Things to note during the trial of Zach Adams, the judge literally tried to invite the jury to their small town high school football game. Because that isn't unethical, right? Just to prove it, here's a clip of him literally talking to the jury. This is the judge of the Zach Adams trial. Do you have any Hardin County Tiger football fans? <clears throat> wow. We might see if we can get you folks out there in the presence of guard. You understand we'll be isolated, but probably could put you on the visitor side. We play south side. If you want to go, uh, there should be adequate place in this visitor side where we can put you without danger of exposure. The judge is talking about sending this sequestered jury to a football game as if that's not going to expose to everyone in these small counties as to who's on the jury. And then at the end of the trial, the judge is pointing out various members of the jury that he knew in passing or had a connection with personally. How is that impartial? That's not only impartial, that's illegal, unethical, and complete fucking bullshit. You can't friend the jury when you're the judge overseeing a murder trial. That is just disgusting. Now one of the saddest moments of this trial was when they discussed Holly's remains. Her mother Karen Bobo literally, literally passed out. She passed out and fell to the floor. Words cannot describe how bad I feel for her. It's so tragic to hear about these type of things happening during murder trials. I, I can only imagine what it must be like to have to give your testimony for your daughter's murder trial. Seriously describing these types of things is why I try to make sure there's humor in this show because it's fucking hard to talk about. It's hard to research and it's definitely hard to tell the story to all of you. Some might think it's disrespectful to add humor into shows like this, but those that do can definitely go fuck themselves because they obviously have never done a show that details such messed up topics. It's not as easy as it seems, trust me. This case was so difficult because there was no DNA, no fingerprints, no video that was allegedly made and never found. And her body had set out in the woods for many years and decayed and was eaten by animals and insects and unjustly altogether strung throughout the wilderness by everything, including the weather. For all of you Californians, which is my biggest audience, at least I think right now, it actually rains in Tennessee, which means that the water falls from the sky and that water moves things around. It's actually a pretty amazing process. You should actually see it sometime if you ever travel out of California. The trial lasted 11 days and again, it was, to this day, the most expensive and rigorous and costly abduction murder case in Tennessee history. In fact, it was the most expensive case in Tennessee history. So Shane Austin killed himself. The Piercy brothers, Mark and Jeff, they were arrested on the basis of allegations made by Jeff's former roommate, Sandra King, who alleged that in May of 2014, Jeff had showed her part of the video showing Adams assaulting and killing Bobo, who was tied up and crying. She told police that she watched only a small clip and did not see the sexual assault. 
so police arranged for King to make a recorded call to Jeff where she told him over the phone that video of Holly, if it had been you that was raping her, I would have watched it. To which he replied, I know. King alleges that Piercy's brother Mark shot the video. Somehow though, the charges were all dropped, being that this wasn't justice, it was a game. And that wasn't true. He didn't even hear what she was saying. On January 28, 2018, Dylan Adams received 35 years without parole. In January of 2017, Jason, o Jason Autry had made a deal to be released just after a few years for being that he was the state's main witness. And on September 22, 2017, Zach Adams was found guilty on all charges, which were kidnapping, first-degree murder, rape, and he was sentenced to life in prison without parole and two consecutive terms of 25 years for both the kidnapping and rape convictions. Zach will never, ever get out of prison unless the truth actually comes out. And if he did it, then he did it. Like I said before, I'm not saying he didn't do it. I am saying that the evidence did not prove that he did it. And last time I checked, our justice system is not supposed to just lock up people because they want to. They're supposed to actually prove a case. Nobody won in this shit show. District Attorney Matt Stowe was elected to office in the summer of 2014 following the fictional arrests and stated that he believes he was elected in part due to the skepticism regarding the arresting questions over whether enough evidence exists against them to obtain a conviction. Voters wanted another set of eyes on this Holly Bobo case. They weren't happy with everything that was coming out of there. And I think that they wanted someone else to take a look and someone else to say, we know what's going on. The worst thing that there is very likely, the worst thing about all this is that there is very likely a killer still out there that did this. Tennessee, as aforementioned, has many killers that are active at all times. So it's hard to say what they're out there doing now, but they're out there. This case wasn't solved, and nobody guilty was charged with the actual case, in my opinion. I want to thank you all for listening to me. And until next time, always remember, just because you're paranoid, it does not mean that they're not out to get you. It's just not enough to be paranoid. Watch yourself, protect yourself, always have a good lawyer, and smile, laugh, and love. You never know how long you have. I appreciate you. This is Holly's song written and sang by her cousin Whitney Duncan, and it's an amazing song. Please listen to it, and think about someone you love while you do. I will talk to all of you soon. Till then, live tonight like it's the last night of your life, and try to do that with every night. Can you believe we finally won a football game? Got new sidewalks and a brand new bank. We're still sitting in the same pew every Sunday, singing the same songs the same old way. I think
Thinking about you when the preacher prays But I bet you don't miss this town Nobody needs And that lonesome red light blinks Your old and your room is the same You probably don't miss a thing Cause your heart don't break in your bed Got married in a rain like hell And granddaddy ain't been feeling too well I think your mama's okay but it's hard to tell Tries to move on but ain't going nowhere We all know this life ain't Thing that'll never change. But I bet you don't.